Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. So our guest today is Katrina Rourke, who is the Vice President of the Climate Leadership Council. Welcome to the program, Katrina. Oh, thanks, y'all, for having me. So uh, it's been a busy week in terms of climate news. On Friday, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez introduced a resolution called the, the Green New Deal. There was a little bit of a confusion with the rollout about what exactly the Green New Deal is that, that her office sent around. So the resolution itself doesn't really say much, in my opinion. It's you know very aspirational. We should find a way to eliminate carbon emissions and give everybody good jobs and make sure that justice is represented and etc. She also, in addition to the resolution, she sent around to the press and put on her website this uh, frequently asked questions document that had a bunch of kind of out there stuff in it about paying people who are unwilling to work and, you know, eliminating cows and airplanes and nuclear power plants for some reason. And then uh, after a while, they took that down and then kind of started denying that the document ever existed in the first place. It's a very, very, very strange rollout. But to the extent that we know what the Green New Deal is, what do you what do you make of it, Katrina? Oh, Josiah. <laughs> um, I've been... I, my my thoughts on this are not matured, so um, this this is all going to be half baked. My apologies, but I I'm of two minds about it. The first is that this is a relatively irresponsible policy suite designed to massively expand the size of government and really manipulate the government into many more kinds of decisions in everyday life. And then I also think that the Green New Deal is a really great slogan for bringing people into the climate conversation that haven't been before and for making climate policy sort of like sexy and attractive to constituencies who may have not cared particularly about climate policy before or have found the challenge to be so great that they can't really name any solutions for it. So either it's a total mess or it's a pretty cool political move to bring new constituencies to the table. Probably it's both, but that's how I've been thinking about it so far. It does seem like this is kind of a the latest in a series of ideas that the left wing of the Democratic Party has developed kind of slogan first, if you will. So, you know, I think that there was like abolish ICE, which is about immigration. People couldn't quite, as far as I could tell, agree what that meant. Did that mean no immigration enforcement or just changing the name of the organization? (laughs) And then same thing, you had Medicare for all, which all the presidential candidates on the Democratic side are supportive of, but none of them agrees what exactly it means. And, you know, the Green New Deal kind of seems in that vein, right? They really like it as a slogan. But if you look at the resolution, there are no details in that thing, uh, other than it's going to be really great. Maybe that works as a marketing thing. Maybe that gets people more interested and involved on the issue. But uh, eventually, it seems like, particularly if we only have 10 years to save the planet or whatever, you'd think you'd want to come up with some more detail pretty quick. 
Right. So maybe I have a third mind about this whole Green New Deal. <laughs> um, it seems to very many people who have been engaged in the climate conversation that we will uh, or we must, some version of that, have climate policy passed at the federal level in the United States in the first two years of the next presidency. That's like a deadline that people have set. Right. So is the Green New Deal so expansive because if this is the one thing that they think we'll, we'll see legislation on in the next, I don't know, five, six years, do we have to put every priority on this climate policy? Do you need to describe anything you want to do as a climate policy if it's not pass a budget or related to healthcare and immigration? Is everything else going to get lumped into climate? I'm I think that's part of it, right? Because you hear some of the people who are, um, you know, engaged in figuring out what Green New Deal actually means, describe it as a policy with three priorities. So the first is climate change. And then the last two are economic inequality and systemic injustice. So those might be far from climate change, but maybe climate change is the best bet for getting policy passed. I don't know. So you're saying they think that because they anticipate a major climate bill is going to get enacted, they might as well try and hitch their own, you know, other things that are important to them to it, you know, because uh, otherwise they might not be able to get those on board. Yeah. Yeah. If the train's leaving the station, might as well, might as well jump on board, right? Yeah, right, right. That's possible. Uh, Certainly, I mean, the the way I've seen some people describe it is they say, well, you know, this other stuff about, you know, job guarantees and free healthcare or whatever, that's supposed to be the sweetener that gets people to get on board with the climate stuff. My stepfather is a pretty liberal guy. Uh, I think he was like a Obama delegate, perhaps. But he was telling me about the guaranteed income idea. And he said, well, that kind of sounds like communism. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know that these other ideas are really going to be a sweetener. Uh, I think there's a reason why, you know, they're not in the resolution. (laughs) But think about it the other way, Josiah, where if you are a constituency that cares very much about climate change, is climate change now a sweetener to support all of these other social programs? Right. So are they trying to... Um, make the Green New Deal inevitable because they're taking to what they perceive to be large and sort of loud political communities and smashing them together. I would think that there's a bit of a risk, though, not to try to give advice to the Democratic Party, but <laughs> it looks like it looks like just about every one of their major um, political and presidential candidates has at least paid lip service to the Green New Deal. And then you have things like this, you know, guaranteed income, at least in the maybe not the resolution, but in the FAQ concepts like they're going to end aviation, things like this. Isn't there some risk to somebody trying to stake out their own place within the Democratic primary field to suddenly being tied to some pretty radical ideas? You know, isn't there some risk there? Okay, I could not agree more. I feel like I've been playing devil's advocate. So um, I'm going to hit pause on that. (laughs) 
I do think, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I do think there's a substantial risk to endorsing a policy framework or a, a framework for a framework before there are any details on the table. I'm, I fear that the, the policy conversation around a Green New Deal is so unsophisticated at this point that we're eroding the ability to ever have a sophisticated policy conversation about what the Green New Deal actually is. So if we want to be really ambitious and rethink what the government should be doing in climate policy? Are we doing ourselves a disservice by making the conversation about supporting or not supporting a Green New Deal that doesn't exist in policy terms and is only sort of an optimistic suite of suggestions for massive overhauls and intervent? Like, what are we actually talking about? And will we ever be able to talk about it if we're starting with a slogan instead of sort of like the outcomes that we want and all of that? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's fair to still go back and comment on the FAQ? Because, you know, obviously there's the rollout was very clumsy and AOC has has tried to distance herself from the FAQ, which was making all these ridiculous claims and was, I think, was talking about trying to end cow farting or something like that. Mm -hmm. Can serious people still comment on the FAQ and pick apart those ideas? Or is that sort of unfair at this point since people are walking it back? But Maybe we should be picking apart the FAQ itself because it was published by her office. It was sent to, I think, NPR last I checked still had it on their website. Is it unfair? Is it unsportsmanlike for us to still pick apart the, the FAQ or are we just left to sort of guessing what the, the bill would ultimately render? I don't think it's unsportsmanlike to to keep looking at the material in the FAQ and asking ourselves how that would fit into a, like a future policy conversation. I do think we should count it as a victory that that FAQ that was far more incendiary, let's say, than the joint resolution that AOC and Markey are, are releasing is now off the internet, at least off of her site, because she sees that it's uh, perhaps unwise to be so incendiary at this point. And, and I, that's a great sign, I think, for being able to have a sober conversation about this eventually. But yes, un- until we know what the Green New Deal is, that's what we have to work from. So let's do that. So one of the biggest critiques that I've seen about the Green New Deal is that it doesn't include any nuclear energy as, as part of the zero emission goal. Do you have any comment on that? Oh, Doug, you're asking the right person. Uh, both of my parents are nuclear scientists. Scientists. And so I have a lot of heartache over this recent shift away from recognizing the role that nuclear power has played in delivering a reliable source of energy without carbon emissions. Yes, any long-term low-carbon solution for the United States must involve nuclear. And there are plenty of issues, plenty of public policy issues associated with nuclear Obviously, the issue of what to do with waste, but things that are a little bit sort of more detailed, like what are the security requirements on site? What does fencing look like? Right. There are so many interventions that we have for nuclear power and we can have a conversation about what we want nuclear power to look like, how we want nuclear power to operate, what we want to do with the waste. But we cannot have a conversation about how we move forward without nuclear power. It is far and away the most reliable way we have on the table to produce greenhouse gas emission-free power. So uh, a lot of folks on Twitter and elsewhere have had a lot of fun at the expense of the Green New Deal and the AOC rollout. Uh, I certainly have. Uh, But I do think it would be a mistake to conclude that because uh, the Green New Deal is 
a half-baked, you know, perhaps in some respects ridiculous proposal, that therefore that means, you know, it's not worth doing anything on climate at all. Make the case that climate is an issue uh, that's worth doing something about federally. Yeah, thanks for that. There is a risk that Green New Deal shifts us away from what can we actually do that's that's practical? So climate change is one of the defining issues of our time, not just because the atmosphere is heating up, but because we are experiencing today climate impacts um, in the United States and, and around the world. And those impacts have costs associated with them, costs that we bear every time there's a wildfire, when there's sunny day flooding in municipalities across the United States, when water stress exacerbates issues on the ground across the world. Um, We are paying for the consequences of climate change right now. What we're not doing a great job of is figuring out a way out of this problem. How do we reduce the anthropogenic emissions associated with climate change? Well, you can say we'll innovate our way out of the problem. Yes, that's how we will do it in the long term. Right. Um, How do we innovate our way out of this problem by engaging across the economy everybody possible, the creativity of entrepreneurs um, and the profit incentive of entrepreneurs to find the next solutions that'll deliver all of our energy needs, but you know, satisfy um, a growing and, and thriving economy. We'll do that not by having the government pick a few low carbon sources of power and say, we're going to innovate until these things are cheaper. The best way to deliver these creative and innovative solutions is to put a price on carbon and let the market find what's next. Your organization has a proposal to do just that. You know, there's a bunch of different carbon price proposals out there. Why don't you give a little bit of detail about what's included in your proposal? Yeah, thanks. So here at the Climate Leadership Council, we work on what we call the Baker Schultz Carbon Dividends Plan. This was released, I guess, two years and a week ago um, by former secretaries of everything, Jim Baker and George Schultz, um, with the support of a few other who's who on the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, And the plan constitutes four pillars. So the first is a fee a rising fee on CO2 emissions across the economy. The second is a dividend so that all of the money that comes into the federal government goes out to the American people in a quarterly check. Early modeling suggests it's about $2,000 for a family of four per year. The third provision is regulatory simplification so that we use this opportunity of directly pricing carbon emissions to roll back all of the other sort of less efficient ways the government tries to do that right now, particularly the ways that sort of bungle with the marketplace and prevent innovation from from delivering next solutions. And the fourth and final pillar is a border carbon adjustment so that we get sort of the whole domestic economy in on a carbon price um, and we don't sort of allow our competitors to shirk what our carbon price is in the U.S. So the four components of our plan together They help sort of address several constituencies. The first, obviously, is the climate constituency. We want to do something about climate. We want to solve the problem. We want our solution to be actionable and meaningful. Uh, We don't want to do that at the expense of middle and lower class Americans. So 
a, a dividend will allow something like 70% of households to be made whole under a carbon price. Um, likely the richest households actually will bear that additional cost um, simply because they use more energy and more energy intensive activities. We also want to make sure that we're protecting American businesses and American jobs. So climate solution is not a climate solution if it ends up reducing economic growth and stifling opportunity. And we need more innovation. We need a thriving economy. So we need a border carbon adjustment. And we're hoping that regulatory simplification helps bring along constituencies that rightfully say that government is getting too large and trying to solve this problem. Returning the decision making to people who make decisions every day, make energy decisions every day, that's the most efficient way of solving this problem, rather than, as we do today, rely on regulations and loan programs and, and all sorts of other government interventions to try to approximate the elegance of a price on carbon through the economy. So I have a question. On this program, we've talked before about carbon taxes. And I think Josiah is in favor of a, I don't want to speak for Josiah, but I think a, a carbon tax that is revenue neutral in the sense of replacing existing taxes. Is there polling data that would suggest maybe your approach has more buy-in than just a, a revenue neutral carbon tax? Is there any polling out there on that? Yeah. So what we have found, Doug, is that once you put numbers to what this looks like, once people understand what the price consequences will look like and what the sort of revenue pot will look like, people tend to favor a dividends plan because we're talking about quite a large amount of money. Um, so some initial polling that we did suggests that Americans support carbon dividends over other ways of spending the revenue by a two and a half to one margin. Um, and that Actually, Trump supporters, supporters of the president, favor the carbon dividends plan by 43-point margin, simply because the idea of returning revenue to individual households who will be making these decisions just looks a lot more attractive when we're talking about a pot of money that's about $2,000 a year. Is there any chance that this could create a unintended incentive, maybe it is intended, that the general public would be lobbying for, you know, essentially for bigger dividends from their perspective, that they would be putting pressure on companies so that they could get a bigger check from those companies. Okay, I think I understand your question. So it, it is a clever way of increasing the likelihood that the carbon price stays in place. We've seen around the world a lot of pushback on interventions that are expensive, that drive up the cost of energy and leave middle class households behind. So the yellow vests in France are probably the best example of this, right? France has been enacting policies that drive up prices. People are less able to pay for transportation to go to work or what have you. And they see a meaningful decline in the quality of their life, so they protest. Now, what if every intervention to reduce carbon emissions was directly tied to a dividend? So if the price goes up at the pump to buy gasoline, you get a check in the mail that helps you pay for that. But you can also find a way to reduce the amount of gasoline that you use. Maybe you get a different car, maybe you change your commute, what have you. But the check stays the same. And so it'll allow people a lot more flexibility in their decision making um, under a carbon pricing scenario. In addition, if rolling back the carbon price means that check goes away, that's not going to be a, a sort of terrifically popular uh, program. 
And so by linking these two things, um, we're increasing the affordability of interventions to address greenhouse gas emissions in the United States and creating a constituency to ensure that we continue to address greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Josiah, I threw you under the bus. Do you want to defend your 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 plan? Did you did you throw me under the bus? I mean, <laughs> you, because it was a different plan. I mean, that is what I what I favor, and uh, I think different people I think have different opinions, both on the political economy of you know how do you get the momentum to enact a plan into law. There's obviously there's advantages there for the dividend. Uh, there's a different set of potential advantages there for the tax swap. There also uh, there are some differences, I think, just in terms of traditionally one of the reasons why right of center economists have favored a move away from taxes on capital and investment and work towards taxes on consumption is because it's supposed to boost economic growth overall. Right. So that is potentially an advantage that you would get out of the tax swap that you wouldn't necessarily get from the from the dividend. Uh, there are definitely some uh, differences, you know, some of them are important, but uh, in terms of, you know, Katrina mentioned the four pillars, definitely on board with the carbon price, definitely on board with the regulatory rollback and the border adjustment. Uh, so, you know, three out of four, uh, that's not bad <laughs> for agreement. I'd be remiss if I didn't point <laughs> out that uh, a few weeks ago, we had the total pleasure of working with a number of the, I mean, top top of the line, uh, best out there economists in the United States. So we had more um, Nobel laureates join us. Every former Fed chair, all but one former chair of the Council on Economic Advisors, join us and say that the four pillars are the way to go. This was a huge accomplishment, not just because we know that economists support a carbon price as sort of the least cost intervention and most efficient intervention to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but this question that Josiah rightly brings up about how to spend the money is a very significant one. And the economic literature has suggested that there is a small advantage to using the money to reduce the existing distorting taxes in place right now. Um, I will note that recent modeling through the Economic Modeling Forum disputes how sort of big the gap is between reducing taxes to to capital and work and a dividend. But um, nevertheless, uh, we joined with these economists to release a statement in favor of the four pillars. And they note in their letter that, of course, the political economy question has to be an important one in determining what to do with the revenue. And note that our second pillar, the the dividend, is an, an appropriate thing in this time to consider for this revenue. So I would be remiss if I didn't point out that we have very many supporters in the economic community for this plan. And also we're, um, we're working right now to get the broader economic community on board. And it looks like it's going to be the biggest statement of economists in history. So that should be pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I, I will say, uh, you know, just the admission against interest is that so far, you know, there, there were two carbon tax bills that were filed last year. One was a dividend bill and the other was the Curbelo bill, uh, which had some tax swaps, but also spent a lot of money on infrastructure. So, you know, probably uh, ahead of the game as far as that goes so far. I, I do wonder about the appetite for um, dipping our toe back into tax reform as a nation so soon. Yeah. We'll have to see. 
We'll fight it out, Josiah. I know a lot of people, particularly those more on the center left, have said, well, you know, carbon tax is great or whatever, but we also need all this other stuff, regulatory EPA stuff and RPS mandates and other things. By contrast, Joseph Bikett of Niskanen, who we previously have had on the podcast, he said, no, no, carbon tax is necessary and sufficient to deal with the climate issue as long as you get the, uh, the price right. Do you have a perspective on that one way or the other? So I'm I, I'm going to uh, come down on the side of Joseph Mikett, um just as a practice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's I think this conversation is one that's very ripe. Um, you know, we started this conversation talking about the Green New Deal and the Green New Deal is a terrific representation of the tendency for the progressive left to assume that more government decisions will yield Um, better and more preferred outcomes. And it's that interest that leads you to say, you can't just have the carbon price. You have to hold it up with belts and suspenders and all sorts of other things. And I I appreciate that tendency. I, I appreciate that many on the left see that the market economy is having some results that they that they don't find great. So income inequality is increasing. Some communities are hotspots for pollution, et cetera, et cetera. I I fully appreciate that it seems like the market left to its own devices can't solve every problem. But I, I fundamentally disagree that a problem that is the result of billions of individual accumulated decisions every day can be addressed any other way than pointing those same accumulated decisions in the right direction with a market mechanism. If we're asking the government to figure out what the best way forward is, it's going to be wrong and it's going to be expensive. Let's tell the market to. And maybe at the end of the day, we're going to need more government policies to help us figure out how to build the infrastructure for carbon capture, utilization, and storage or figure out how to actually build and bring to market a nuclear reactor, you can definitely see that other government policies are going to be necessary. But those policies should support the market signal. They shouldn't get in the way. So another person that we've had on the show to talk about this issue is uh, Bob Murphy. And we had a very interesting conversation, but uh, it was a little frustrating in that, you know, he would throw up a bunch of objections about, you know, carbon tax is going to grow government or other things. And I would say, well, here's here's how you could design a carbon tax so it wouldn't do that and meet all the objections. And when you finally get something that runs through all the list, his response was basically, well, they're not going to do that, right? They, yeah. they won't. They'll, they'll do it wrong. You know, even if you come up with a way that you could do it that would be good, uh, they'll, they won't do it the good way. They'll do it the bad way. Of course, his preferred strategy, I think, is just to get rid of the EPA altogether. And, and <laughs> I don't know that that's politically realistic either. But you know, this is something that I, I it's not just him. The, I hear this from a lot of people. There's just a deep skepticism that government is able to accomplish anything or, or even get anything done sort of setting up a framework where a carbon price could work. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that Congress doesn't seem to be able, it's not very good at passing even the things that are absolutely mandatory for it to do like budgets. Sure. So I, I don't know, what, what, is your, what is your response to that idea that, you know, all this is very nice in theory, but it's just not going to happen? I think that stance comes from a relatively unsophisticated appreciation of where we actually are today. So if your preferred outcome is that government doesn't intervene at all in favor of reducing emissions over time, we have a heck of a lot of things to legislate to get there. So on the books, we have sort of requirements that EPA regulate, regulate greenhouse gas emissions, not just from places like the power sector 
as we saw in the clean power plan and the upcoming, what is it, American clean energy rule, the the Trump administration replacement, Um, not just the power sector, but the transportation sector, right? We're seeing an existing fight over CAFE, the corporate average fuel economy standards. Also, ships, airplanes, the equipment that you use when you're running a large agricultural operation. We might see a propagation of regulations down to so many individualized decisions that you, you know, you're not going to be able to figure out that the the economy can't absorb this regulation without restricting the number of solutions available to people, right? So the Department of Energy operates efficiency standards for something like 60 types of consumer goods. And the most famous example is light bulbs. So an efficiency standard on light bulbs actually takes certain kinds of light bulbs off the market. And yes, it pushes innovation in favor of a more efficient replacement for a light bulb. But that's what government solutions do is they they create perverse incentives and distort the marketplace and restrict the ability of consumers to actually figure out what they want and what they're willing to pay for. That's what's on the books today. We have a NEPA process, um, a National Environmental Policy Act process that requires enormous iterative reviews of almost every decision that touches federal lands or will result in emissions that the federal government controls. And that NEPA process is so broken that you can't build a pipeline of clean natural gas to replace coal emissions from facilities all over the country. But the Northeast is a terrific example. The Mid-Atlantic is a terrific example and the Midwest. So already we see the creation of the government intervention in the marketplace in favor of reducing emissions in a way that is definitely not preferable to a straightforward market price. And I appreciate being skeptical of what Congress can and can't do, particularly as we're staring down another potential partial shutdown of the federal government. I, I do appreciate that. But if we, we have to legislate something because the status quo is completely unsustainable. So uh, Katrina, obviously, this is an issue that, that we work on. If people want to go to rstreet.org, they can find material on this, including uh, some stuff that you have done because you're an associate fellow at R Street and uh, former you created the R Street Energy Program, as it happens. But if they wanted to find out more specifically about the CLC proposal, where could they go? Sure. So they can go to clcouncil.org. If people are interested in learning more about the Statement of Economists on Carbon Dividends, they can go to econstatement.org. And I invite you to follow our work. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Josiah and Doug. This was a pleasure.